uh, 1 Samuel, chapter 17, verses 1 to 17, and then 32 to 37. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war, and they assembled at Socho in Judah, camp at Ephes Damim, between Socho and Azekah. Hope you got Google Maps with you this morning. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. That's, I think, like a 10XL size or something. He's definitely over nine foot. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves. These are the kind of ultimate shin pads. And a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Verse 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Uh, Andy Simpson's going to come and share with us uh, on that passage. And Andy's a good friend of ours, a good friend of mine. Um, we both lived in Edinburgh for a good part of our lives. We both came to Birmingham as postgraduate students. We've both worked in Birmingham for decades, and uh, we've thrown our lives into the church here at Riverside. Um, he's uh, currently a deputy uh, head at uh, Hall Green. So welcome, Andy, as he comes and shares with us now. Well, thanks very much for the, uh, for the introduction. I have to confess I haven't come very far to be here this morning, but it's, uh, it's seriously a great pleasure to, to be here and have an opportunity to, to speak. And, and, and I yeah, gen genuinely pray that the things I've got to share with you will, will, will help each one of you in your walk in some way. Um, as, as Andy said, yeah, we, uh, we grew up just a few miles away from each other in Edinburgh, went to sort of rival schools um, and turned up in Birmingham about the same time. And it, it, it is interesting, looking back over the, over the years, at how our sort of paths have interweaved over that time. For me, uh, we, we both uh, spent some time working with Riverside on, on a program that was called Freestyle many, many years ago. A few people will remember that. Um, and Andy's work with the church. But for me, I, I, I'd felt God lead me gently in, into the world of secondary teaching, and I've been a, a, a secondary 
uh, science teacher for over 20 years now, uh, currently deputy head at uh, Hall Green Secondary School, just up the road from here. And um, all-consuming, yeah. A at times over those 20 years, I have to say the work has been all-consuming. It, it's, it's taken up ev every part of my strength, every, every hour of the day, every thought in my head. Um, sometimes it's felt to, to uh, it's been a, th a threat to take over my life. But, but personally, I actually believe God called me into teaching and he's got purposes for me there. So I've got to reconcile the two things. I've, I've got to actually submit my own ambitions to, to God in all of that. I don't claim by any way to have, to have got all of this taped or sussed, um, but I do feel I've learned over the years and, and I want to be able to share some of my own reflections on that. But we're also going to look at the, the life of David as somebody who was also very successful and see what insights we can, we can draw from the life of David. Uh, if, if you were just to think back to perhaps stories of David, if you've, if you've ever read the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, if, if you haven't, I did it over my holidays, I'd strongly recommend that you do it actually. Loads and loads of really rich stories of how God interacts with a person all through his life. Um, I've chosen two stories to focus on, the one that we've just heard Andy read, the, the story of the, the encounter with Goliath. And um, If I just go through my, my titles, I, I describe that as David, David at his best. But we're also going to see David at his worst, which is uh, later in his life, David's encounter with Bathsheba. And we're going to look at how those two things interact. So to get started, what, what do we need to say about work? Because sometimes work can be a dirty word. I thought the, I thought the video we watched was fantastic. When, when Andy sent it through to me, it really, it really <coughs> qu cut me quite deep. But at the same time, work is what we do all day, every day. Is is work a dirty word? Um, so a few scriptures uh, from Genesis chapter two. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. So number one, God works. And we're made in God's image, so we work. So work is a natural thing to do. Genesis 2:15. the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. God gave Adam work to do before Genesis chapter three, before the fall had happened. So actually work is part of the purpose of what humans are supposed to do. It's how we show that we're in the image of God. It's how we work out all of that creative energy for good that God has put inside us. Um, Jesus said, my, fa my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. Um, I find it interesting that God, even God, places boundaries on his work. Um, on the seventh day, God rested. And when I was a new Christian, I thought, well, of course he rested, he'd finished. There's nothing else to do. But Jesus says, no, my father is, is always at his work to this very day. There was a, you know, an ancient view that perhaps God was like a clockmaker who set the world up, set it going, wound it up, left it ticking, and, and walked away. That's not the God that Jesus describes. God is always at his work. God is interacting in, in creation, interacting with humanity the whole time. God is working, and Jesus says that he too is working. And yet God is working, but God has established that principle of taking a Sabbath rest. So work is good, work is godly, work is what we are called to do, but even God 
in doing his work has established the principle that it has boundaries to it and the principle that, that we call Sabbath. Um, it's interesting, Andy, that you, you use the word overwhelming because I was, I was thinking about this. I look back at my work over the years and sometimes I would describe it as all-consuming. And that describes something quite internal, my own internal drivers wanting success, wanting to do it better, something driving me internally. Other times it's been overwhelming. External drivers, pressure coming from outside. If you work in public services, I'm quite sure you understand what that means. Every year being asked to do a bit more with less. And somebody leaves being told, no, they're not replacing them you're just going to cover that work instead. And if the work doesn't happen, it's not about me making more or less money, it's about somebody out there missing out. Education, some child perhaps missing out. And what I mean by this is all-consuming and overwhelming, it's complex. As I look back at my own time, I would think in my younger days, I think probably all-consuming happened more than overwhelming. I look back at myself and think, yeah, there were enormous internal drivers wanting to succeed, wanting to do things well. And the work was a little bit overwhelming. There was a lot of it. As I've risen to more senior positions, and, and, and I genuinely hope as my walk with God has gone on and I've had to learn to submit things to him, I hope that the all-consuming side has perhaps subsided a bit. My, my aim is to, is to put work in its right place before God. But as you go on in your career, of course, the overwhelming side just goes on and on and on. And, and for all of you, whatever work it is that you do, it will be a combination of those two things. And, and actually it calls for, for each of us just to, to discern well, how much of it is all-consuming, how much of it is that, that internal drive that we've actually got to submit before God, and how much of it is, is that overwhelming push from outside, the pressure of, of the world pushing you to do more and more. And within that complex situation, yes, we have to put some boundaries in. And, and a final sort of introductory point on work as well. Um, three people there are described doing work. There's God the Father, there's Jesus, there's Adam. Um, none of them was paid for the work that they did. Um, w work is far bigger than the word of paid work. Um, unfortunately, I do get paid for the work that I do, but lots of people here work where you spend your creative energies. It may be studying, it may be caring for children, it may be caring for uh, an elderly or dependent relative. All of that is, is work. The fact that it's paid doesn't make it any more or less valuable. All of it is work. It is the way we express ourselves in, in God's world, we, the way we express the, the image of, of God in us. And, and, and I hope that, therefore, this isn't just um, a, a talk that will perhaps appeal to those of us in, in, in professional jobs. Actually, all of us work. It's what we spend our time doing. It's what we put our energies into. It's how we express what God has put into us. So, David. Um, it might seem a bit strange to look at David. He was a king. If I were to look at Queen Elizabeth II, well, uh, she, she works very hard in what she does. She, yeah, it's a slightly different sort of work from the rest of us, isn't it? Um, but David is unusual amongst kings because he, he genuinely started at the bottom and worked his way up. And I, in my reading through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, I counted at least six different jobs or careers that David had. He started and is introduced to us as a shepherd working in the world of agriculture. He became a court musician. He was one of the best musicians in the land, played for the king. Uh, he was a singer-songwriter, in fact, because he wrote psalms as well. 
He became an armor bearer to the king, so he went into the service industry. He was then promoted to become an army officer, worked in the military. Um, he became a fugitive, uh, loosely call that self-employment. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and latterly, he, he was a king, but very much in, in, involved in, in the world of, of, of politics. So a man who, who has been exposed to a lot of different careers. And interestingly, of course, it's, it's said of people, to young people today that you will have many different careers in your life and you may at the moment be studying and preparing yourself for careers that don't even exist yet, such as the changing nature of, of our world. Um, and and why, why David? Well, what appeals to me about David is here as a man, he was a high achiever. He was phenomenally successful in every one of those job roles that he was given. Um, and yet, what we also read in the Bible was that he made a serious mistake in his personal life and, and he experienced personal tragedy in his family as well as, as, a, as a result of that. Um, I love the fact that the Bible is so very, very honest about the shortcomings of some of the heroes because that's how we can identify with them. That's how we can identify with the way that God interacts in their life. And, and that's important to the narrative of what we're going to look at today. Um, and interestingly as well, we, we've got books written about David, but he also wrote Psalms, and, and they're great because they give us an insight into what he was thinking at the time. So, we, we pick up the action, and he's read out the story to us of uh, David and Goliath, the one that we all perhaps learnt in, in Sunday school. Um, how did David get to this point? Well, he, he worked, he was the youngest of eight brothers. He worked as a shepherd for his father. Um, his brothers had all been sent off to fight in a war that Israel were fighting against the Philistines. And David, the youngest, was sent along to take some food out and supplies to his brother. Um, and he gets to the battlefield and he's amazed because there are all the professional soldiers lined up and there are the Philistines lined up on the other hill against them and the Philistines have chosen this champion Goliath and David is affronted he's affronted at the way Goliath defies the armies of Israel and he's affronted at the way all the professional soldiers all the people of Israel are terrified are intimidated by Goliath. And I've, I've written there, David understands that he is in a covenant relationship with God. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Now, we would in, in, in our culture, we would say that's really quite derogatory, personal, insulting language to use. David clearly doesn't mince his words. But he's referring to the fact that all Israelite men in their body bore a mark that says, I belong to God. He is my God. I stand for God's honor. And David is affronted because he understands God's covenant with the Israelites. He is affronted. You bear the mark of God in your body and yet you are allowing him to defy you, but not only you, but to defy God. And God's honor is being insulted. So David has, a, has an understanding of covenant. And actually, more than that, because David then talks about what he had learned 
about covenant with God in his ordinary, everyday work as a shepherd. And he tells the story of how looking after sheep, if a lion or a bear came and snatched a sheep, he would go after it. And he said, and God would help me. And in God's name, with God's help, I was able to rescue the lamb or the sheep from the bear. He understands that God is interested in every aspect of his life. It's not a question of, well, I'm just doing this boring job. I'm just a shepherd. I'm just sitting here in this hill looking after sheep. It's not that important. No, God is interested in every part of my life. Um, Pause for a second. I think it shows that David is very, very wholehearted about his work as well, which clearly is a strength, but perhaps is his undoing. Um, I think if I'd sent my son off to, to look after the sheep and he'd come back and say, I'm sorry, Dad, um, a lion came and got one of them, I would probably say, well, okay, son, <laughs> at, least, at least you're safe. We've lost a sheep, but at least you're safe. David says, no, not, not on my watch. A lion's got a sheep, I'm going after it. That gives us a little bit of insight into how he approached even the most mundane of jobs. But, but what it also shows us, I think, is it's, it's this understanding of, of covenant. God is interested in every part of my life. David learned in the small thing, in the quietness, in the solitude of his work as a shepherd, that God was faithful. And if he stepped out to do what he believed right, God was with him and God would protect him. And David has transferred that into a much, much bigger setting. And there's a principle here that Jesus teaches us about. If you're faithful in the small thing, God will give you the opportunity on a much bigger stage. And, and I think this is important about work because so often we can, we can fall into the trap of thinking that our everyday work, whatever it is, is, is perhaps second rate what we do in church is the important stuff. That's the spiritual stuff. No, God was involved in David's work. David expected God to be at his side in his work because he understood that he was in a covenant relationship with God. And he chose to use his work as an opportunity to go on an adventure with God, an opportunity to step out and increase his faith in God. And whatever your work is, my work is full of challenges. I'm sure whatever you do all day is full of challenges as well. There are opportunities. God is interested. There are opportunities there to step out and to learn more trust in God, to step out, to put more faith in God. And, and as we do it in the small thing, Jesus teaches us that God will give us the opportunity to do it in the bigger things as well. So David has a great victory. And, and really, the, the nature of his victory, I, I was t telling a friend about this, this talk the other day, and he said, well, is it, is it any surprise that, that, that David managed to kill Goliath? Was it really a miracle? He just happened to be very, very uh, skillful at using a, using a slingshot. Um, poor Goliath was clumsy and couldn't even get close to him. Possibly so. To me, the miracle is that there were thousands of professional soldiers who were terrified and intimidated, and David said no. I trust in God. In God's name, I'm going to do this. The fact is, yeah, he knew he was quite skillful with a slingshot, but to me, the miracle is the fact that he had the courage to stand against what everybody else was telling him. And not only were thousands of professional soldiers terrified, and they said, and who are you? Who are you to think that you can uh, win this battle? 
But again, it was that relationship with God that, that made him say, no, I've got confidence that I can do this. So David becomes very, very successful. Paul promotes him, Saul rather, promotes him, armor bearer, and then becomes a, a military officer. And in fact, he becomes so successful that Saul very quickly becomes jealous of David and tries to kill him. David has to run for his life, and for seven years, he lives as, as a fugitive, staying in caves, living on his wits, living off the land. As we read through that narrative, there are various points where, where we see David inquiring of the Lord as to whether he should go ahead and fight a particular battle, and he hears from God, and God says yes, or God says no, and he goes ahead and he, he wins his battle. There are times when he struggles, and it talks twice about David finds strength in God, so we know that his relationship with God was close. And there are two times when David actually comes upon Paul, where Saul, where he is defenseless and has the opportunity to take his life and doesn't. Which shows us that, that whatever other faults he might have had, selfish ambition wasn't one of them. He was prepared to let God elevate him to his position uh, when the time came. Uh, eventually Saul is killed in battle. David becomes king over Judah, the southern kingdom. After seven years of strife and civil war, David eventually becomes king over all Israel and Judah. And, and eventually, he has subdued all of his enemies. He's fulfilled what seems to have been God's call in his life. He's become the king over all Israel. It's rather like winning that ultimate game of Monopoly. He, he has, he's arrived. Finally, he has done everything that he worked for for all of those years. Um, what could possibly go wrong? And sadly, this is where we now see David at his worst. So if I just read out, um, this is reading into, into 2 Samuel chapter 11, if anyone's following it. Um, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, which is a beautiful phrase in the Bible, it sounds a little bit like it was the start of the cricket season or something. At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now, she was purifying herself from her monthly Uncleanness, which is the Bible's way of telling us that, what was, that the child that was about to come was definitely David's. Then she went back home. And the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. David, whose life so far has been nothing but success, has made the blunder of his life. He's committed adultery. As the story goes on, and you may well know it, he therefore calls the husband back from battle, Uriah the Hittite, and suggests he goes to uh, spend a bit of time, R&R, &R, with his wife. But Uriah, as an honorable man, says, I'm not going to do it while my fellow soldiers are out on the battlefield and doesn't go near his wife. So David gets desperate. How do I cover up what I've done? So he sent instructions to Joab, the general of his army, to, to put Uriah into the part at the front line of the battle where the fighting is thickest and then toward the troops to withdraw from him. And as expected, the word comes that Uriah has been killed in battle and David heaves a sigh of relief. Gosh, I made this blunder. It's covered over now. No one's ever going to know about it. 
Um, but Nathan the prophet comes to him and speaks to him and tells him a story of a poor man who had just one sheep and a rich man who came and stole that sheep. And as he tells that story, David suddenly realizes that, you, that Nathan is talking about him, that God has sent word of what he's done, that he is completely laid bare. And Nathan says, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And, and what happens? Well, the child born to Bathsheba dies and tragedy strikes David's house. Uh, his oldest son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. The next son down, who's the brother of Tamar, murders Amnon in revenge. Absalom then sets himself up as king and is later killed. A whole string of horrible events happen in David's life. We can read it as God's judgment, as is pronounced by the prophet Nathan, or we can just see it as the natural consequence of David's actions. What, what he's done means he has lost all moral authority to talk to his sons. If you read through the narrative in the Bible, he doesn't rebuke either of his sons at any point for what they've done. He never takes them in hand. But, but how can he after what he's done? Because they can just turn around and say, well, Dad, you did worse. So we're left with the question, why did he do it? Why did he do it? Um, and I'm going to propose three possible solutions. Uh, I don't claim to have the answer. Perhaps we won't ever know. And uh, perhaps it's a combination of these. Uh, you might call it midlife crisis. David had achieved his goal. He'd won the ultimate game of Monopoly. Um, and his life was now empty. What, what do I have to do? He was bored. Um, Clearly, David had spent 14 years where the work completely dominated his life, where he was a fighting man, fighting for his life. And in that time, he hadn't set the right boundaries around his work. He hadn't invested in his family, his wives and his children. I have a certain sympathy for David there because if you are running for your life. You can't just decide you're going to take the afternoon off and have some me time. Um, he was being driven by the work, but somehow the work had consumed all of his life. And here's what, what really grabs me about this story. I'm just going to go back to what Nathan says. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? These are the words of God brought to David by Nathan the prophet. And as you read them, it sounds intensely personal. It sounds to me, it's the words of a father, of a parent saying, I gave you everything. Why did you turn away from it? I gave you everything. And, and all I can think is it's, what, what did God actually want from David? Relationship. I gave you everything, but somehow that relationship had died. And, and so 
my suggestion is that somehow for David, that relationship with God that had once been so alive, even though he still trusts God, that relationship perhaps had become very task-orientated. David was very task-orientated. It was all about the doing. He trusted God and God was with him. But somehow, what the Bible calls in the New Testament, the first love had died. David's love for God had somehow become dulled. And in the midst of all that work, in the midst of all that achievement, something inside him, the lights had just gone a little bit dim. So what do we learn from from David's experience? Well, quite clearly, it's a cautionary tale and we can see what can go wrong if we don't set the proper boundaries on our work, however important, however compelling that work is. Remember David's work, he was He was on a mission from God, to quote the Blues Brothers. Um, Nobody could say it wasn't important. Um, I think it's important that we understand when we are vulnerable. It's important that we understand that we are vulnerable. Actually, all of us could at some point go and make one of those terrible mistakes. So we need to be aware of that. Our walk with God needs to be humble, realizing we could blow it at some point. But for David particularly, he needed to understand when he was vulnerable. I've learned over the years, I've you know, worked very hard in term time. Lucky enough, we get some quite decent holidays. But I know in the first few days of a holiday, I am vulnerable because I can become intensely selfish because I've worked really, really hard for a long time and all I want is some rest and a chance just to do the things that I want. That's a time when I know I could go and do something stupid. So to understand when you are vulnerable is, is important. But the one that again, this, and this is really the one that, that I've been thinking about a lot over the last year, seeking and nurturing relationship with God, even when you're exhausted and under pressure. It, it, when, when, you know, when, when every thought is about work that's pushing in and you, you know, the, the pressure of whatever it is you're trying to achieve, when it's difficult to switch off, when you are exhausted because you are having to keep going, when the work is unrelenting and because of all the external drivers perhaps you just aren't able to to get away from it. How do you nurture that relationship with God? I don't say I have the perfect answer, but just a a thought came to me as I was preparing that when when you're in that desperate situation, you, you can survive on crumbs if the crumbs are of the right thing. And, and w- what is the right thing? Well, it, it's that genuine presence of God. Um, Psalm 84 says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And, and for me, where I'm at, the challenge is, yeah, at those times when I am so drained by work and so exhausted and so feeling under pressure, the challenge is, can I find five minutes genuinely where I find myself in God's presence? because that changes everything. That's what keeps alive the first love with God. Um, The prophet says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And actually, David, the man described as a man after God's own heart, it was something in his heart had just gone a bit dull. Finding that, those pools, if you like, of genuine presence of God those are things for me that, that refresh. 
How do you do it? Well, I can offer one or two suggestions. Obviously, it's, it's up to each individual to find that. Um, at those times when it's so hard just to hear the voice of God, I've found over the years, scriptures are immensely helpful. That at different points in my life when I felt under pressure, God has given me, shown me, particular verses that have helped me to come into his, his presence. Um, one of them, do not be anxious about anything, but in all things, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which passes all your heart, passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, just to take five minutes and pray through that, and usually by the time I get to the thanksgiving bit, and think, well, let's just find three things to be thankful to God for. I've connected with God at the end of it. Somehow, I've found some good in my day. Um, one of my favorites, at the end of a really draining day, just get before God and say, I'm just gonna pray for the three people who've wound me up the most today. Yeah, obviously that happens to one or two users. Uh, why is that so good? Well, well, Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount to, to bless those who, who persecute you. And actually, at the point I did that, what am I doing? Well, I'm connecting straight away with my, with my work, the reality of the situation. I'm not trying to be all religious and holy. I'm saying, this person has really wound me up. And then I just think, that what are one or two things I can pray for this person. And actually, as you do that, you start to feel God's pleasure because you are doing what Jesus said is something of God's kingdom you are doing something which is totally opposite to what the world would do. And, and for me, that's been a really helpful way of just saying, I'm gonna go from the immediate situation, which is driving me mad, and it takes me straight into a place where, you know, I can feel God close to me again because I'm doing something that he said I should be doing. Um, one other one, I find routines um, very helpful, but Sue and I have been married for 22 years. Uh, I am a routine person, Sue is not a routine person. We've discussed this in, in great detail. For me, routines are very, very helpful when, when life is very busy. I understand for some people they may not be. In, in prayer, I've, I've found over the years there have been times where I felt God has guided me to a particular routine. There was a particular time in my life when God just showed me some people who for different reasons were close to me who were suffering from cancer and at a particular point on my journey to work I was just in the habit I'd stop and I'd take five minutes from here to here I pray for that person for those three people every morning now one of them I lost touch with as it happens the other two this went on for over a year and at the end of the year the two that I was still in touch with have both been completely recovered one of, one of them quite, quite remarkably so um, and, and sometimes, sometimes I, I found God gives you those spaces in the middle of a very, very busy life. For me, routines like that can be helpful. Um, but there's, there's, there's one question left unanswered, and this is really about David himself, because we remember David as being great. Um, and as, as I was preparing for this, it, it occurred to me that that the story of David has all the ingredients of a Shakespearean tragedy. Except, an apology for the spoiler, the hero doesn't, doesn't actually end up killing himself. The hero actually finds his way back onto his feet again. Um, how did David become great again? Um, I, I said that we have books about David, but also books in the Bible written by David, and David wrote a number of the Psalms. Psalm 51 is, is David's prayer, David's record of how he responded to suddenly realizing what it was that he had done. 
and yeah, we, we hear all sorts of public figures who, who go and make blunders and do things that they shouldn't do, and we hear, well, I didn't do it. We hear, I had a moment of madness. We hear, I, I deeply regret what happened, which is code for uh, I wish I hadn't been caught. But <laughs> David's response is very direct, and it's deeply personal. And just as God said through Nathan the prophet to David, what more did I have to give you? David says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Goes on, surely you desire truth in the inmost parts. You don't delight in sacrifice or I bring it. You know, there's, there's nothing I can do to make this better. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. And, and there's something absolutely profound in the way David, one of life's greatest achievers, responds to this episode in his life. No excuses. Well, he clearly has sinned against his family and has to make amends with them. Actually, he understands as a godly man, above all else, I've sinned against God. And so his response to God is full, it's deep, and it's direct. And while David has to live with the consequences of his actions for the rest of his life and work through those, the relationship with God is restored. Um, and I was thinking about some of the other Psalms that, that David wrote and thought, well, isn't, it, isn't it funny that the guy who wrote Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, could have, could have gone and done the thing with Bathsheba. And they did more research and look, where, where, where do scholars think David wrote Psalm 23, and actually they think even though he was a shepherd in his younger days, he wrote Psalm 23 at the end of his life. <clears throat> he had the knowledge of, <clears throat> of being a shepherd, but actually that was his reflection at the end of his life, and that wonderful, wonderful psalm of how I can trust God even in a valley as dark of, as death, you restore my soul. That has come out as a reflection after this happened and, and demonstrates how his relationship with God, despite everything else, was fully, fully restored. And so you know, the glorious thing is, I, I hope there are some thoughts in here as to how we can avoid getting it wrong badly in life, but also what God offers us is, is, is the way back and it's just deep, personal repentance. Um, Finally, I love this. Um, if you read in, in, in 2 Samuel, it says, David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son. This was after the first son had died and named him Solomon. The Lord loved him and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah, which means loved by the Lord. There is something remarkable here that for all the damage that David had caused in his family, somehow God has turned plan B for his life back into plan A. God's plan A for David's life was that he would found a dynasty, that he, his family would be kings over Israel. And as we read at the start of Matthew's gospel, David was an ancestor of Jesus. Um, and somehow, despite all of this, but because of the way that David has found his way back to God, God is able to turn what had definitely become plan B for his life 
back into, into plan A. And, and that's a, just a, a wonderful illustration of, of how God's grace works in our lives. So, lots in there, and I hope you find something that, that, that will help you in your walk. Let me just pray to finish. Father God, thank you that um, you walk with us in, in our work. Thank you that you're interested in every aspect of our lives that we can learn to trust you in, in, in the most mundane of matters. Father, I pray for, for each of us here that we, could, we can have some discernment about putting boundaries around our work, discernment about how much of it is, the, is that internal drive for success, how much of it is the external factors pushing us. And, and Father, would you, would you help anyone just struggling with that to find ways to place good boundaries around their work but, but Father God, above all, thank you that, that this story of David illustrates that above all you seek relationship with us. And that even for the man who had achieved so much for you, it was relationship with him that you sought above all else. So Father, just pray for, for anyone who's feeling a bit hollowed out in their faith, a bit like it's just gone a bit dull. That relationship, Father, would you, would you now come and meet with us? Help us, each of us, just to have our own conversation with you and, and, and rediscover the, uh, the joy of, of our salvation. Amen.